We're going to be returning to Mark's gospel this new year now. And we pick up the account of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, in Mark chapter 12, where he is again being tested by his enemies. And with each encounter, Jesus showed himself to be a man of complete integrity, full of wisdom, and ultimately as the one who is David's Lord. As David's Lord, he is the one who is worthy of our allegiance, worthy of following, worthy of imitating, worthy of knowing. So we're going to look to him today in Mark's Gospel. And you can turn with me to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And we're going to look at a series of encounters that Jesus has with different questioners. Beginning in verse 13. And I'm just going to begin by reading verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The they that is there and they sent to him is the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish people. They wanted to arrest Jesus. We learned that just the verse before. In chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him. They wanted him out of the picture because he was a threat to their power and influence over the people. They also wanted him gone because he had just spoken a parable against them, comparing them to murderous thieves and declaring they were about to reject God's chosen cornerstone, the Messiah. And that they would be destroyed. That is verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 12. And so it is in this context Jesus has spoken these words and they are angry. But verse 12 tells us they feared the people. People who who liked Jesus. who, Who were enamored by his words. They were drawn to him. And they didn't want to lose their power and their reputation. So they came up with another plan, another way to oppose Jesus. They sent men from two opposing political parties. The Pharisees, who hated Rome and resented the Herod family, family of Herod were non-Jewish rulers that had been placed over them by Rome. The Pharisees did not like that. But on the other side, we have the Herodians. And as you can guess from the name, they supported the dynasty of Herod. They benefited from it. 
and they quite liked the arrangement that was worked out between Rome and the, the Herods. And so you have these enemies that were sent, that were united against Jesus. Their goal, verse 13 tells us, was to trap him in his talk. They wanted to use his own words against him so that they could lay a charge against him. Let's continue reading in verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? Their tactic this time was one of flattery. They pretend to want to know the way of God. But their flattery hides his hidden hooks and barbs. You see, by calling Jesus a man of integrity, which he was, they are seeking to trap Jesus into answering this question. This question that is very politically charged, the question about taxes. People tell me that they don't like that to today as well, apparently. The depth of feeling runs deep, and it, and it ran deep on both sides. If Jesus could be caught saying something anti-Roman, they would immediately report him to the governor as a revolutionary and let them deal with him. But if he could be caught sounding pro-Roman, there goes his reputation in the eyes of the common people who hated the Roman occupation and the, the abuses that they felt every day as they lived in a country that was occupied. By another nation. The question is loaded because it seeks to make allegiance to Caesar in the form of taxes and faithfulness to the God of Israel, mutually exclusive options. And people on either side would become very upset. But Jesus answers, and he answers with wisdom. He answers in verses 15 through 16. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus saw the net that was laid out for him, and he does not walk into it. First thing that he does is he brings their intention to light by asking, Why do you put me to the test? He lets them know that he understands what this is. And everybody watching would understand what was going on. 
But then he does something different. They probably weren't expecting this. He asks for a coin. And in doing that, he, he sets a trap for them to expose their hypocrisy. Asking for a coin, he, he then he gets them to acknowledge that the money that they, they use belongs to or, or it came from the emperor. That's whose image was on that coin. Now listen to what Jesus concludes in verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus' point is clear here. If these men will do business with Caesar's money and benefit from it, not to mention they're bringing the image of a man who claimed to be the son of gods into the temple of the living God, then they ought to pay Caesar's taxes. Because it came from his treasury. But at the same time that he makes it clear that Caesar ought to be honored and given that which belongs to him, he makes it equally plain by saying, and to God the things that are God's, he makes it plain that Caesar is not to be honored with the divine honors that belong to God. Caesar is not God, and we do not owe all to him. We do not owe all to the government. To the government, we owe taxes and a sense of respect, if not for the person, at least then for the position of authority that they hold and the role that they play in our country. But to God, we owe our whole selves. For God's image is inscribed on mankind. Each and every person is stamped with his image. And so the whole person belongs to God. Jesus' opponents are left marveling at this. They're left marveling that he could walk right around their trap. They don't have any answers back for Jesus because they recognize that what he said was true. But the Sanhedrin isn't finished yet. So they send round two a group of religious uh, skeptics, experts in the law of Moses, they send them to ask another question. Verses 18 through 23. Read along with me. And the Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's uh, brother dies 
and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There, are seven bro there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, so they have a very interesting question that comes from the law of Moses. And the folks that asked this question were the Sadducees. This is the first and only appearance of the Sadducees, at least by name in Mark's gospel. You often hear when people are describing, you know, the culture of the time, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Well, this is the only time in Mark's gospel that we directly come encounter with them. They, are, they appear at other times in the other gospels and in Acts. But there's, there's not a lot that we know about them. We know that they basically all did not survive the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so most of what we know about them comes from the people that survived, the, the people that followed more of the Pharisees' way of thinking. But we know a few things about them. We know that they were influential among the priests, and we know they held quite strictly to the books of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so they would reject anything they saw as derived from or coming from outside of the books of Moses. They were very strict and conservative in that sense. Mark explains to us here that they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't see any, any validity to it in the law. And so they come to Jesus with this question. question about what Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 6 says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man should not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this is a way of honoring the, the brother who died and not allowing his name to uh, be forgotten. And also a way of providing for that widow who would have a son. But the Sadducees stretch that scenario to the extreme here. In the, this scenario that they tell us, seven brothers kept trying with this, this lady, but none of them have kids. And 
They ask the question, whose wife will she be in the afterlife? Who gets the girl, essentially? Okay? But this whole situation is designed not because they believe in the resurrection. Mark tells us they don't. That's not a part of their way of thinking. They ask this question because they want to make Jesus look like a fool trying to explain how all that's going to be sorted out in the resurrection. Okay? How's this going to work out, Jesus? You explain it. They knew it sounded ridiculous. But instead of playing their game, Jesus makes them look like a fool for not knowing the scriptures and for denying the power of God to raise the dead. Listen to Jesus' response. Verses 24 through 27. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus does not dance around the problem in their thinking. He tells them twice, you are in error. You are quite wrong. He bookends his whole conversation by saying, you're totally out to lunch here. But he also diagnoses their problem. He does tell them exactly why they're wrong. Because they did not know the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 24. He goes on to to show why that is in his answer. You see, their scenario has a simple explanation. There is, Jesus says, verse 25, no marriage in heaven. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, the resurrection life will not be the same as it is now. The resurrected are made like the angels. Not into angels, that's popular culture way of thinking, but like them. That is to say that the believer's resurrection life is comparable to the life that is enjoyed by the angels who do not perish, They don't get married for their whole existence and their whole purpose and their whole life is centered around communion with God, worship and service to God. The Sadducees and many people today assume that the age to come will be the same as today. And so they mock it. But in doing that, they 
are denying the power of God. His ability to make all things truly new. And in a way that we don't yet fully understand. Do you believe that God is able not only to raise the dead, but also to raise us up to something far more glorious than we can imagine? Do you believe in the power of God? It's a good question to ask ourselves and to understand the reason there are so many skeptics in this world today is because they deny the power of God. They don't want to acknowledge his power and his ability to do things beyond um, the, the natural world. That God himself set up and put in order all things and holds it together. And can make all things new and grander than before. But there is a second thing that they deny, and that is the word of God. For Jesus shows in verses 26 and 27 that they have failed to understand a basic text. A text that just happens to be in the five books that they say are scripture. So they have no excuse in Jesus' explanation. The text that Jesus brings them to is the burning bush passage. Calls it that. The passage about the bush. In that passage, God declared to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus 3, verse 6. And Jesus quotes it in verse 26 of Mark 12. The argument there is very simple. God did not say I was the God of these people who are now dead. But I am. God is not the God of corpses. He's not the God of people that no longer exist. He's a God who is able to raise up all people. Raise up his children from the littlest ones. If the dead were not raised, think of this. God would not be faithful to his own covenant and word with those men and with all who call upon the name of his son in faith. <clears throat> How could God be faithful to keep his word if he could not raise the dead? And if that was not his intention? That we could have communion with him for all eternity. This answer Jesus gives from the word of God. And it is the final word on the subject. Can God and will he 
raise the dead? Yes. And he will do it in a way that is far grander than we imagine. We picture the new heavens and the new earth a lot like our own. And it will be. But it will be greater and better. We aren't told how the Sadducees responded. Presumably, they remained in their unbelief. But we are told of another man, a scribe, one of the law experts who was sympathetic to Jesus. He he liked what he had heard Jesus saying. And so he asked a fundamentally important question. We'll pick it up in verse 28. We're going to read verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Pause there. This last exchange is definitely different than the first two, isn't it? This is a man who is sympathetic to Jesus, who has heard um, Jesus answering these other scribes. And he has a question for Jesus. An important question. The scribes often weighed the many commandments, which was more important. And so that is what this man asked Jesus. What's the most important commandment? Many considered the sacrificial law to be the most important commands. Jesus quotes two passages from the books of the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. And he puts the weight of the law where the Scripture does, on loving God with the whole person. Thoughts, our longings, our choices, seeking God for his own sake. Because he is the one true God. 
and finding in him our joy and our satisfaction and our delight. That we would love God and display his love towards others in our relationships with them. That is the whole of godliness summed up. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that on these the whole law hangs. If you take away this understanding, you have no meaning to all of the different laws that you read in Leviticus and the laws that you read in the book of Deuteronomy. Now the scribe agrees with what Jesus said. And he adds a, a statement about how this commandment to love him with everything you have and to love one's neighbor, verse 33, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He acknowledged the truth. He had an understanding that God desires more than, than outward shows of worship. He desires our heart to worship Him, to adore Him, to be satisfied in Him alone. But even so, Jesus' response indicates that He was not yet in the kingdom. He was not far, but He wasn't there yet. And we're going to leave it in the Lord's hands Trusting that I, I think that, that the Lord continued to work in his life. I think that he pondered what Jesus said to him. That you are not far. I think that Jesus very clearly wanted this man to consider not just saying the right things, what he said was right, and what he said was good, but to consider the implications of what he had just confessed. What does that mean? Was he willing to follow Jesus? You see, there's more to Christianity than being a fan of Jesus' teaching. Look at all the things that Jesus did and how he answered the Pharisees and the Herodians and the, the Sadducees well and how he answered this scribe. And many people might agree with Jesus on these separate issues. Okay, I'll pay my taxes and yep, I'll serve you, Lord. Um, yep, I believe in the resurrection. Good, we're good there. Yep, love your neighbor, love, love God. You could agree on those things. And I hope that you find yourself nodding amen as you, as you hear Jesus answering with the truth of God. You see, you see him as the one who has the answers. But to enter the kingdom of of the Father, we must submit to Christ, to His person. And I think that is why 
Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. Because what he has acknowledged is true. But how he will then walk will demonstrate whether he believes it to be so. Whether he believes that he is to love the Lord with all that he has. And whether he will recognize Jesus as his Lord. Jesus continues teaching in the temple, verse 35. And he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he him his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. As Jesus teaching, he, he says that the, the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. They agreed that the Messiah was the son of David. They knew his lineage and what it would be. The people longed for his coming. At the end of our text, it says the great throng or the great crowd heard him gladly. They were excited to hear about their Messiah. But Jesus is concerned with something in the midst of, of all of this. He wants the people to know that the Messiah is greater than his father David. And so he asks a question from the scriptures. He says, how can David, by the Holy Spirit, I'm paraphrasing, call his own son, my Lord, which is what David does in Psalm 110, verse one. How could David, by the Holy Spirit, call his own son, my Lord? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool underneath you. And no one can answer. They've already been shut up in verse 34. After Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God to the scribe says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They have no more questions. They have no more words before Jesus. But he has this word for them. And his question speaks for itself in answer to the scribes who knew the human lineage of the Messiah. They knew it was of David. They didn't recognize the supremacy of the Messiah over his own father. The truth is veiled in this unanswered and unexplained question. But the Messiah, who is by the testimony of the word of God, David's Lord. He is Lord over his own human father. Great, 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 great grandfather, whatever.
and the son of David, David's Lord, is by God's own word given a place at the right hand of God the Father. He's given a place that is co-equal in power and authority with the Father. How amazing is that? What a testimony of the greatness of the Messiah. That he is given the place that belongs to God alone. For he is, as the scripture says, one with the Father. When the Apostle Peter spoke at Pentecost, he declared in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and we, and of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the Spirit of God. For David, Acts 2, verse 34, did not ascend into the heavens. That word that he spoke was not about himself. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, this is the conclusion. And the Spirit of God has been poured out this is the word that is given. Know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, he has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he goes on, the people ask, what shall we do? And he says, repent and believe. Believe in this one who is both Lord and Christ. Jesus was and is the God-man. David's Lord. Is He yours? Amen. Did you know that He is worthy of all of you? All your life? No compartments left out? That what Jesus said of the Lord God that you shall... Love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength is true of him. That what Jesus said about giving to God the things that are God is true of you giving your whole life to him, Jesus. And that he is the one who has the power raise the dead for he himself was raised this is Jesus our Lord and our God is there some way or somewhere that you're not willing to follow him they say of you you're not far from the kingdom of God. Or come my child. Enter. 
into the joy that is prepared for you. David's lore is worth giving all. He is worth listening to on everything that he says and in everything that he does. He can make the blind see and the lame walk. And he can bring joy out of great sorrows and raise you up on the last day. Take your cues from him. Give yourself to him. Stand upon his word. Believe in him. David's Lord. Your Lord and Savior. Amen.